You guys can return to your seats. And as they're heading back, please turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 50. There's 23 verses there. I want to read it in its entirety this morning. And we'll talk about it as we have time. Psalm 50. Once you find it, please stand with me as I read it. And then remain standing as Jeremy leads us in song. Let me remind you that this is the words of our Lord. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, has spoken. And summon the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shone forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before Him, and it is very tempestuous around Him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge His people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silence. You thought that I was like you. I will reprove you in order before your eyes this case. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. It's really good to be back with you guys this morning. I missed you all last week. Um, we certainly enjoyed our time. Your wedding went well. Uh, certainly enjoyed worshiping uh, with the church there in the Northwest. Uh, had the opportunity to preach, um, but still, 
I missed you guys, and it is very good to be back with you this morning. I do owe you an explanation, though, because when I left here, I told you that I was finished with uh, talking about worship, and we would be right back in Romans 9 this morning. Uh, but when Steve asked me to preach up there, I realized, you know, I can't drop in the middle of Romans 9 on them in the middle of a sermon because that that's the monster of Romans. And it's going to take me quite a long time to make my way through 9, 10 and 11. So I'm not comfortable enough just doing one sermon and, and walking away from that. So I thought I'd just go back to the Psalms, which I intend to do on Sunday nights when we get Sunday nights sorted. But I, we're at Psalm 45 and I still haven't got that one worked out in my mind. And so I started reading ahead a little bit and I came to Psalm 50 and I was like, oh, yeah, that one really jumped off the page at me. So I started studying Psalms 50. And then after I'd read it several times, I walked through the dining room and Paige asked me a question because I asked you guys to, you know, think of questions about worship. She said, I've got one for you. She said, you've taught us how to be faithful corporately, but how do you how do, when are you going to teach us how to be faithful personally in worship? And so I realized in that question that Psalms 50 was about worship. So I showed her there's two sections in this passage or, or two pairs of verses that help us be faithful in worship personally. And then I sat back down and I opened a commentary somewhere as I was studying through Psalms 50. And here was the words of the commentary as he began on the Psalms. He said, this psalm deals with man's worship of God and duty to his neighbor. Asaph described a scene in the heavenly courtroom in which the Lord had indictments against two sins of his people. Number one, formalism in worship and number two, hypocrisy in living. And so at that point I gave up and I realized Psalms 50 is about worship too. And so I'm not ready to leave worship just yet. So once I preached through it there, I thought it would be helpful for us to walk back through it this morning. It is unique. We haven't really looked at anything like this because it ties together two thoughts, judgment and worship. In fact, God has called his people to judgment because they're not being faithful in worship. And so we really need to understand what's going on in this psalm. Now, let me lay it out for you. I usually do this on Sunday nights, and I certainly want to keep that up as we walk through the psalms. But the first six verses is really the scene of a courtroom. You've got two witnesses that have been called forth. If you'll notice in verse 4 of Psalm 50, He has summons the heavens above and the earth. And so God has called to the courtroom His two witnesses, and it's the whole heavens and the whole earth. In fact, in verse 1, He says He summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. So it gives us a picture of He summoned all of creation into His courtroom. Now the judge is obviously the Lord, and you can see that in verse 6, in the last part of that verse, for God Himself is judge. But He's not just the judge. God is also the plaintiff in this courtroom. If you'll notice verse 7, Hear, O Israel, or hear rather, O my people, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. And so the Lord is not just the judge, He is the one that's bringing the accusations. Now, interestingly enough, the defendant or the ones that are accused are found in verse 4. Last part of that passage, he summons the heavens above and the earth to judge who? His people. And so those are the ones that these accusations are being made against. And really, the Psalms is kind of divided up into two different sections. In, the, in verses 7 through 14, 
The first crime is against those who loved the ritual of worship, but they had no heart for worship. And so the Lord levels an accusation against them. The second group of people in verses 16 through 21 are those who love to recite the law, but refuse to obey the law. In other words, they love to talk about doctrines. They love to talk about the things that we find in the Word of God. They esteem the Word of God, except they ignore the Word of God in their life. And so he levels an accusation against these people as well. Now, the reason I relate both of those into worship is because from my understanding, the writer formed this as an order of worship. And I had one of those up here this morning. Here it is. This was our order of worship that Sarah and Jeremy did for us. And so this psalm is laid out in a very similar way because in their worship service, first came the sacrifices. And so the Lord deals with the accusations of the sacrifices. And then they had the reciting of the law. And so the people would stand and recite the law with their lips, all the while ignoring the law with their life. And so the whole, the whole Psalms 50 is kind of like an order of service or an order of worship service. And the Lord is looking at each part and He's making His accusation against each part. Now what's awesome about this is each section ends with grace. If you'll notice in verse 14, I don't want to get into too much of it right now. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. In other words, He's telling them how to fix this. Your forms are perfect, we'll see, but your heart is not. Let me tell you how to fix this. And he, he begins to give them grace by teaching them what to do. Likewise, in the second part of, or the second section in verse 23, he does the very same thing. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. So he teaches them how to fix the problem of holding the word in their mouth, but not in their hands. I'll tell you something else that's interesting about this psalm as far as its arrangement goes. It's ordered just like the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. The first few passages deal with your relationship with God because when you talk about sacrifices, you're dealing with your relationship with God. And the second half of this psalm is dealing with your relationship with men. In fact, he deals with uh, the Ten Commandments 6, 7, and 8. I believe it is, yeah, 6, 7, and 8. When he talks about adultery, he talks about stealing. And he talks about slandering your brother or speaking against your brother. So he's very careful with his order of arrangement. He, he's arranged it like the Ten Commandments. He's arranged it like a worship service. And he wants to rebuke the people for where they're missing it when it comes to the subject of worship, which will really help us because that's exactly where we are when we're talking about these things. Now, something else that I found, and in fact, this was actually what jumped out at me first uh, this psalm teaches us so much about the character of God or the attributes of God. Paige and I are reading a book together and it starts out in chapter one with a quote from R.C. Sproul. Really, he answered a question. Someone asked R.C. what was the greatest need of the world? And he responded to know who God is. And then they asked him a second question. Well, what is the greatest need of the church? And he said to know who God is. And so it's just the same. And I'm so thankful for what we've been doing in this church on Wednesday. I'm so thankful for the direction of 
all the guys in here are concentrating on who God is as described in his word. We're constantly looking at those things. And that is the greatest need in your life. If you know who he is, it will help you orient all of your life around him. And so this psalm really begins with it. If you'll notice verse one, you've got three names for the Lord. So we'll understand exactly who he wants to talk about. He refers to him as the mighty one, God, and then the Lord. So mighty one is El, the general name for God. God in here is Elohim, which is the plural name for God. And it's not necessarily plural because of the Trinity, but because of the magnificence of his glory. That's how they described him. And then finally, the last name, the Lord is Yahweh. That's his special name that he gave to Israel. But among the attributes, if you'll notice the first one really that you come to is found in verse three. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him and it is very tempestuous around him. Now, that is definitely one way that the Lord is not known in the church today as a consuming fire. Now, certainly the nation of Israel did, because when he said this, they understood very well or they remembered very well what it was like when God came down on Mount Sinai and the top was literally being consumed and they were standing there trembling. You can find that in the Old Testament in Exodus when they meet with the Lord. You can find that in the writer of Hebrews. He brings it up. And I found it interesting. It's also found in Deuteronomy 4 in the words of Moses when he's preaching some of his last sermons. And this is what he asked them. You remember the day that you stood before the Lord God at Horeb? He's like, you remember that? It was absolutely terrifying. And so today we don't get that picture of God at all. And we should not if we're in Christ. Because when he died on Calvary, Christ, if you will, swallowed the wrath of God against us that brought condemnation to us, right? But yet when you get to the, the end of Hebrews, the writer still describes him in, in Hebrews 12, 29. He says, our God is a consuming fire. Meaning that realization is not supposed to leave our hearts when we consider him in the perspective of worship. Because when we come before Him in worship, we should come trembling before Him. Not acting silly and dancing and running around and cheering. No, you ought to come in here trembling before the Lord because He is a consuming fire. And if you're not in Christ, this is what I asked the congregation last Sunday, if you're not in Christ, I do not understand how you're able to sit in that pew and not crawl under that pew and scream out of fear, knowing who God is and who you are in your sin. You're totally arrogant to sit there in the face of a God who is a consuming fire. But because you're in Christ, we get to sit here in grace, knowing that what Christ did for us, we don't go through the wrath of God. But nonetheless, that's who He is. The second thing that we come to is the fact that God is judged. Notice verse 6. And the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. And He will sit in judgment over all in that great day. That's something else that's not communicated in our day. No one sees God anymore as a judge. He is love. 
He is kindness. He encourages us even in our sin. He loves us for who we are. That's how God is known in the church today. People have forgotten that He's a judge. In fact, that's how Paul preached the gospel in Acts 17. He said to lost people that God is fixed today when He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed. That was Paul's gospel. Let me introduce this conversation by talking about the fact that God is judge. And I'll go on to the gospel. So God is a fire. God is a judge. And we don't want to hear that anymore. But that's the God of the Bible. The next one that you come across to is found in verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. We refer to this as a difficult word. You don't use it much. The aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It simply means this, that God is independent. He is self-existent. He doesn't need anything. Now, that statement will shoot down a lot of worship songs in our day because we describe God as needing us. God does not need us. I had to be reminded of that on our trip out west as I sat down and talked with Steve about some things in my life. He's like, you do remember Ephesians, right? God doesn't need you. And I'm like, yeah, I forgot. He doesn't need any of us. He created everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And we quote that, but we don't understand the context. The context, God, God says, is I don't need anything. I was fine before you got here. I'll be fine after you're gone. If we were going to be gone, you understand. So God is self-existent. He is independent over all of creation. And in the same line of thinking, He is Lord over all of creation. Notice verse 10 and 11. Or, or rather, verse, verse 11. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. You do understand that he just covered the sky and the land. And he said, I own it all. And not only did he say everything is mine, but he also said, I know every bird. And I talked about that. I'm not going to take up our time this morning like I did in the Northwest. But you need to sit there and think on that. Up there, they don't have a lot of birds. It's kind of weird. You come here, there's birds everywhere. I mean, literally, birds everywhere. And we're almost to that time of year where the blackbirds come and absolutely cover the ground. And God says, yeah, I know them all. I know each and every one of them. And we can't comprehend that at all. But that's what makes God, God. He owns it all because He created it all. He is Lord. A couple of more i got to move through quickly. God is a God of grace. I told you in 14 and 15 and then down again in verse 23. You realize, and this dawned on me when I got to 14 and 15, 23, and I even had to have a little more help on the side than that. He's just describing judgment. It's not time yet. That's a beautiful thing for us because we're not there yet. Judgment has yet to come. And so God has said, this is how I want you to fix your worship. This is how I want you to fix your life. Our God is a God of grace. He teaches us what we need to know. And then the last thing is, before we actually get into the psalm itself, God is a God who saves. Notice verse 15. 
Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Notice the last verse of the psalm. It comes right back to it. I shall show the salvation of God. So even in the context of judgment, God comes back around to the idea that in my grace, you will know my salvation. And so you're really left with one responsibility. Will you listen to me? That's what he's saying. Will you listen to what I'm trying to tell you? And you will know the grace of God and you will know the salvation of God. There's a lot more. I think I counted 10 or 12 different attributes that you can find in here, but that's enough to get you started, I think, at least thinking on the attributes of God. But let me get to the context because, again, the context is worship. Now, again, verse 1 through 6 is the scene of a courtroom. And there are two things that really should strike us. The first of those is how God comes. And then the second is why God comes. Now, the how God comes probably would not have struck a Jew at all. They were used to the prophets speaking about the judgment of God and the wrath of God. But talking about how God comes as a tempestuous fire in this passage should strike the church today. Because again, we don't see God in that way. And yet the Old Testament and the New Testament describes God in this way. I said this two weeks ago and I'll say it again. The gospel did not change the character of God. Our God does not change. This is who he is. And so you should immediately be taken aback that God has come as a tempestuous fire. Again, the second one, though, is why God comes. And you pick that up in verse four and five. He summons the heavens above the earth to judge his people. And then verse 5, gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So here's the question. Can God really be righteous and do that? Can God call his people to judgment, those that he's made a covenant with? Can God really do that? Well, look what the heavens say in their testimony. Notice the heavens and the earth finally speak. It's the heavens in verse 6. Right after the psalmist tells us that God has gathered His godly ones for judgment, the heavens immediately declare His righteousness. I really think that that's there exactly where it needs to be. Because when we hear that God has gathered His people for judgment, we would go, wait a minute. Is that right? Can God do that? Don't we have promises that speak against that? How can God do that? And the heavens simply declare He is righteous. He is righteous. Now we have to remember that the Old Testament is not the only place that speaks about judgment beginning with the people of God. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will become the outcome or what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? See, you need to realize judgment begins with us first. And I know that's a question in your mind, and I, I hopefully we'll be able to answer that better when we get to Romans 9, because the verse that I stopped off at, the very next verse that I'll pick up with in Romans 9 says this, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What does that mean? 
Everybody that's physically of Israel is not spiritually of Israel. In other words, just because they are physically of the line of Abraham does not mean that they are spiritually the children of God. There's a passage in 1 John 2 that speaks in a very similar way. It says this, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were not of us. In other words, not everybody in the church is of the church. Now, what I find fascinating about, fascinating about that is all of them are in worship in Psalm 50. I would have assumed, you know, we could go ahead and say God's going to judge those people who have never worshipped the Lord. Even though they've professed God, they've never worshipped God with their life. So we can automatically assume that they're in judgment. But this goes a little bit deeper. God has called to judgment those who are gathered in worship. Which means we've got to be very careful that we're not simply going through the rituals and the exterior outward signs of worship when our hearts are far from worship. Because if you do that, it's a very good sign that you don't have a personal relationship with God. That you will be gathered up as, quote unquote, his children for the purpose of judgment. So we really need to understand what's going on here. So let's look at this first crime. Look at verse 8. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. Notice that I don't have a problem with your sacrifices. And you have to understand that the sacrifices were required by God. He commanded them and they were offering up those sacrifices in obedience to the command. God says, I'm not going to reprove you for those. You are continually offering those up before me. But again, we're talking about people who loved religious expression, rites and rituals. But when it came to their heart, it was nowhere to be found. So this is where we need to be very careful in understanding two things, probably three things once I get through this. We can have perfect forms. We can do everything exactly right and yet God not consider it worship. And that ought to be deeply concerning for us all because we really want to get things right. Now you have to immediately ask the question, well, is it even important to get things right? Absolutely. The sacrifices were necessary. If they didn't bring the sacrifices, they would die. You had to bring the sacrifices. And so they were doing what was required, but God required even more than what was required, if you will. He required that they worship Him from their heart. The second thing, and this just dawned on me really, or came, became clear to me this morning, right? The sacrifices were not for God, and they thought they were. They were under the impression that the forms were for God. But the sacrifices were not for God necessarily. The sacrifices were for the people. Something had to make atonement for their sin and something had to bring them into the presence of God, right? 
Now you know how thankful you ought to be for the Lord Jesus because you can't even worship God without the Lord Jesus. It's offensive to God. You draw before Him to worship Him without the blood of Christ, you can die and you will in the judgment. We desperately need the sacrifice of Christ even to draw before the Father in worship. You need to understand that His sacrifice was for us in order that we might draw near to God and worship Him because we desperately need Him. They thought the sacrifices, and that's why we have these statements here. If you'll notice in verse 9 and 10, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. The world is mine, all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Is that what you're expecting me to do? And they really thought that. Because they confused the God of the Bible, whom they did not know, with the little g-gods of the world, the idols. And those little g-gods needed the sacrifice. They were under the impression that they drank the blood, ate the flesh to strengthen them to do what the people wanted the gods to do. That's why they offered sacrifices to false gods. These little gods need these sacrifices, I guess, for energy. But they had the audacity to think that uh, I'm bringing my sacrifice because God needs it. God's like, you don't even know who I am. This is not for me. This is for you. Which brings us to the purpose of worship. Do you realize why you're here this morning? It's because it's what you need. You're in desperate need of the worship of God, and you may not even realize that. I would say it's one of the greatest needs of your entire life. And what do we do? We come out of obligation and duty. Probably one of you got up this morning and go, are we going to go to church this morning? I don't know. You want to go? If you want to go, I'll go. And God's like, you have no idea. That's like saying, do I need breath today? I don't know. You want breath today? If you say we need breath, we'll breathe today. That's how arrogant and misunderstanding that is. Do I need food today? I don't know. You want to eat today? That's the same conversation. You know, Steve had a rough day before Sunday last week. So he had to give his daughter away on Saturday. I knew that was going to be tough. He cried all the way down and there was a long walk. They had it outside. So he had to walk off the back porch, walk across the field to get to the front where they had built an altar. He cried the entire way. He said, I couldn't even see where I was putting my steps. And I said, well, once you get up there and open the word of God, I said, you'll be fine because you'll remember your responsibility. And he, you know, he did. And he went on and did. It was profound about marriage. The wedding gets over or, or rather right before the wedding, right before he did that. I forgot it continued after right before he did that. His wife passed out out cold she was out in the hot sun tying flowers around the chair trying to get everything done you know how mama does i got to do everything myself she just fell flat out they had a nurse or emt there whatever to help her she called Paige completely out of her mind and the wedding's you know just an hour away and she's talking to Paige like she's just gone 
we get her straightened up, just praying that the Lord will get her through the service, goes through the service. She's kind of like a zombie. Right after the service, she goes down again. This time it's evident she's got to go to the hospital. So Steve leaves his daughter at the wedding before they leave, gets his wife in the car, drives her to the ER and stays till 4 a.m. The next morning he's sitting on the front row for worship. A few hours later. And the reason is because he needed God in that moment. This is for you. And I pray for the day that we all mature to the place where we really understand that. And we're not making a decision on Saturday night or Sunday morning about what we're going to do. We look forward to this moment as the moment of our entire week that's going to give us life for Monday through Saturday. If I don't go to the house and worship the Lord, I'll never make it through this week. That's something that they misunderstood in the sacrifices. Now, there's something else here. So I've said a lot about their hearts were far from them. And so, you know, if we didn't have these verses before us, we would immediately think, oh, I, I can fix the heart. I can, you know, we just need more oomph in worship. Uh, we need more excitement in worship. We need to sing louder in worship. We need more feeling in worship. No, that's what the world will tell you. But that's not how God fixes this worship problem. In fact, he's very careful to describe what they need to do to fix worship with three phrases. If you'll notice with me in verse 14 comes the very first one. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, we begin our service like that on Sunday morning. That's the very first prayer that we do. But that needs to be the attitude of your heart all the time. A heart that thanks God for all things is a heart that recognizes God in all things. Let me say that again. A heart that thanks God for all things is a heart that recognizes God in all things. We need to be a people who are constantly expressing thanksgiving to God. For He is constantly caring for us and providing for us. Even when we don't understand what He's doing, we still need to have a heart of thanksgiving because we know that He knows every bird on this mountain by name. And if He does that, surely He can take care of me. And it may not look like He's taking care of me, but surely I know enough of the character of God to know that He has this situation well in hand. Therefore, I can offer Him thanks. Because He is faithful. So the first thing is, He says, I need you to remember me. It seems as though you go through your entire day and just fail to remember me. You just go from here to here to here and never once stop and recognize me and thank me for everything. Second thing is, you'll notice in the verse, verse 14, pay your vows to the Most High. Now this one's a little bit more difficult because the Old Testament speaks about vows, making vows to God. But when you get in the New Testament, Jesus warns us about making vows to God. In fact, Jesus says, just don't do it. Let your yes be yes. That's kind of where I am. Don't be somebody that makes promises to God. He takes those very seriously. Don't do it. That's my best advice for you. 
Don't ever say, well, God, if you will do this, then I will. You've gone too far. He's serious. But what I do with this passage is I think about the vow that they made at the foot of that mountain when God gave them the law and they said, we will do everything that you have commanded us to do. Boy, that was a great vow, wasn't it? But when we carry that into the New Testament and we call him Savior and Lord, in effect, we're saying, you're my Lord. I'm going to humble myself and obey you. In other words, if you want to get your worship right, start walking in humility and obedience to the Word of God. Don't just go around. It's certainly a part of it. But add to your thanksgiving a humble and obedient heart in all things. And God says, now you're fixing your worship. And then the last thing is, if you'll notice in verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. In other words, depend on me. And I think, hopefully, that, that, that may be one area that you're starting to get right because you're calling on the Lord. You, you know you need the Lord. But let me tell you something. You don't know the half of it yet. You need the Lord for everything. And you need to mature to the place where you understand that. And go, Lord, I, I need you for this next conversation that I'm about to have. I certainly need you for worship. I'm going to need you as you're walking into work on Monday morning. Lord, I'm going to need you. Mom, as you get up and you hear your child, your first child wake up in the morning. Lord, I'm going to need you. They're waking up. It's like that all day long. So I'll shorten it up for you. You want to fix your worship, recognize me or thank me, obey me and depend on me. I am God, your God. Now the second one, I'll, I'll move through it a little quicker. Notice verse 17, the second crime. The first one was they were offering sacrifices, but they had no heart for God, so He fixes their heart. The second part of worship, they would recite the word of the Lord. Notice verse 17, or rather verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth, verse 17, you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Now let me tell you something. This one scares me and it really ought to scare you. Because we think a lot of the Word of God around here. But you know what's better? Obeying the Word of God. You might be impressed with what you know, but God's only impressed with what you obey. He is not impressed that you may have all the doctrines carefully written out in your mind and in your heart to where you can quote them verbatim. God is not impressed that you might know every single one of His attributes and be able to describe the holiness of God in great detail and be faithful to the text. Now what He wants from you is with what you know, you walk in humble obedience to. And He says, now that is getting consistent with the worship of God. I don't want anybody in this room to think, I don't know as much as them. 
I want you rather to think I'm walking in humble obedience to everything that I know. And if you're doing that, God says, now that's consistent with faithful worship. It's not the knowing. Do we strive to know? Yeah, you should. If you're a teacher in here, man, you ought to lose a lot of sleep over trying to understand and know. But at the end of the day, if you're not obeying that, it's not doing you a bit of good. Now, notice specifically the crimes that he mentions when he says, you cast my words behind you. Notice with me, and I'll mention these just briefly. I want to move on. I know. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. In other words, the first way that they were casting the word behind their back is with their associations. Now, we need to be careful with this. I immediately thought of 1 Corinthians 5, 9, where Paul writes this. I wrote to you my letter. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral of this world or with the covetous or with the swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And so the first thing that we've got to come to terms with is you've got to be careful in your associations because if someone is professing to follow Christ and yet their life looks like they don't in a great way, you really need to rein in that association in that relationship. That's not okay. Part of our testimony is wrapped up in who we associate with. And if they profess Jesus and live like the world, it's time for you to reevaluate that relationship. But at the same time, let me say this about the lost. Y'all are probably like me and most of the people you work with are lost. And you have to build a relationship with them, but you do that for a purpose. You do that for the purpose of being a witness to them, not sharing life with them. You've got to be careful as a child of God who you build relationships with. And I know that affects part of your family, and I would take that under special considerations. But I'm not talking about them in those special cases. I'm talking about your friendships and relationships outside of the church and outside of specifically your family. If they're so-called brother or sister in Christ and they don't care about holiness, you need to reconsider that. And likewise, if they don't profess Christ, you need to be careful about how close you are in your associations. Secondly, is probably even more pronounced against us, verse 19. You let your mouth loose in evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son or i.e. your brother. In other words, you condemn, you criticize, you judge, and all the while you so eloquently quote the word of God and the faithful doctrines. How do those two things go together? God is like, and you call this worship? And you do realize that that falls harder on me than you 
And that's why I tremble of heart to even read that. This is the passage in, in Psalms 50 that gets me the most. But this is the passage in Psalms 50 that you need to wrestle with as well. How can you quote the sweet words from heaven and then use that same mouth to condemn somebody that's made in the image of Christ? How? And that's what God says when He says, you just, you just throw my words behind you. You just pick it up and you just say, ah. and you say what you want to say. Again, he comes back to grace when he says down in verse 23, He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him, notice, who orders his way aright. You're going to put a stop to that. And you're going to worship God faithfully, corporately, faithfully, personally, by using your mouth to glorify the Lord. Now, there's a couple other passages that I want to deal with and we'll be done. Notice verse 21. This is the gravest mistake. These things you have done and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. That's the mistake that we all have a tendency to make. And again, it's in the context of worship. And he says, because I have been silent with your external religious expression, with no heart whatsoever, and because I have been silent when you quoted the Word of God, said you loved the Word of God, and then tossed it behind your back, and because I was silent, you must have thought that I would never hold you accountable for that. You must have thought because I kept silent, I was just like you, that I was okay with those things. You thought because I was silent that you could continue to come in here and go through the motions in corporate worship and go through the motions in personal worship. And because I didn't say anything, you thought I'm OK with that. But he says, I'm not OK with that. In fact, he noticed this and I had to wrestle with this one a little bit. Verse 21, you thought I was like you. And then verse 22 now consider this, you who forgot God. And you have to ask the question, how did they forget God if they thought God was just like them? And here's where I've landed with that question. You've forgotten the God of the Bible. And I think that's why Psalms 50 has so many attributes of God that's hidden in this psalm. You've got God in your mind and your heart. The problem is it's your God. And that's the problem with us all. We're constantly recreating God into an image that we're comfortable with. I think it was my wife that said something because we were talking about something else, but it stuck with me for this conversation on the way home. We always think that we're the standard. Isn't that amazing? For anything. I'm the standard. Because if I didn't think I was the standard, I would change how I live, right? But rather than evaluating my life and the things I do and the things I say and repenting of those, what am I doing? I'm looking at somebody else. You know, I really don't appreciate how Jeremy da-da-da-da-da-da. I can't believe Jeremy would da-da-da-da-da. So we're all under the assumption that I'm the standard that God is pleased with. 
in everything. And God says, your problem is you think I'm like you. You've forgotten who I really am. But the beautiful thing about this, again, is the grace. And I finished with this. Notice verse 23. He comes right back to Thanksgiving. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. Now, again, when you're thanking God, you're fixed on God. Secondly, I take it just like verse 14 and pay your vows to me. I think it's a restatement. And to him who orders his way aright. He who does what is right. He who does what is right in all things. And then lastly, he comes back to salvation. I shall show the salvation of God for salvation rests in God and God alone. We need him. We depend upon him. And that's our attitude toward him. Now, do we need to let me sum it up with this thought. Do we need to get worship right? Do we need to fix our forms? Yes. Yeah, sure you do. Sacrifices were assumed. They were doing that right. Who are the forms for? Well, in a way, they're for God. But also, we need to understand that the forms are for us. The forms are to help us get these things right, to be a thankful people, to be an obedient people, to be a dependent people on God. And so whatever our forms are right, we need to realize they're more for our sake than His sake. But the most important thing is it comes back to the attitudes of our hearts. And again, it's not energy. And that's all the church is trying to do today is, is create energy. That's the purpose of the lights going out. That's the purpose of the music being loud. That's the purpose of the particular song choices. That's the purpose of the smoke. Everything is trying to create an attitude of energy. God's, he didn't even mention that. God's like, that, that's not my problem. My problem is with what's going on in your heart. Steve told me this when we talked about worship at length. And he said, you can get it arranged right. But he said, the real question is, can you make it genuine week in and week out? And that's the real question. But that's a question that every single one of us has to answer. I can't answer that for you. I can't make it genuine for you. But you can. Let's pray.